people go through a crisis when they're focused on how the world should be, but isn't, and never will be. And this is a process that helps you get ready to deal with the world as it is. That's Lynn Franklin, persuasiveness speaker, author, and trainer, who joins me this week to talk about how we can deal with our communication and our interaction when we're feeling stressed, when we're dealing with anxiety, and the people around us are as well. Welcome to Communication on Point. I'm your host, Dean Hefta, and this program is focused on bringing insights and tools to help you increase your impact as a communicator and your effectiveness as a leader. Let's get started. Lynn Franklin, welcome to Communication on Point. So glad to have you. Looking forward to a fun conversation, Dean. Yeah, you know... When I think about communication and I, and I think about all of the stuff that we sort through in our minds, I know the, the big thing that's affecting that is what's happening in our brain. And I love the insights that you bring to the table of talking about how so many things under the surface affect how we communicate, how we connect, how we build rapport. It's things that we're not even aware of. And by bringing that awareness up, it really helps us, I think, to become more able to manage it and recognize it. And in these times, you know, these historic times, we can encounter, I guess you could call it distress, frustration, annoyances at a maybe a higher rate, you know, uncertainty all around us. And so uh, that leads me to believe that we're going to be running into it with ourselves and with people around us, maybe not our best selves all the time. And I guess I, I'd like to start our conversation understanding from your experience, from your perspective. What's the impact that stress has on us in our ability to process and communicate and connect when we're dealing with some of the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis? One of the unusual things about our brains is that they cannot tell the difference between something that's a real threat and something that is an imagined threat. Our brains respond the same way to either which is why we can be sitting safely in our homes and then our brains get into the swirl about all of these different things that could be happening and might happen and and you know and all down the line and we get into that that whole fear thing is if it's actually going on right now and so let's let's talk a little bit about what happens to our brains under fear and probably yeah I had I used to have a high school teacher who said to know something you need to know something. So here's what you need to know about your brain on fear. And that's actually that you have three brains. Uh, the first brain is called your survival brain. So that's the oldest part. Uh, it was the part that was designed to keep you alive when we were all in the jungle. And basically, we got three choices there. We got fight, flight, or freeze. So there's not a whole lot of thinking that goes on there. And sitting on top of the survival brain is the emotional brain. So that's where all of the emotions live. You know, mad, sad, glad, hurt, afraid, and all the permutations in between. But here too, in the emotional brain, is where we actually make decisions. And sitting on top of that is the human brain. And this is the one that collects information from both the survival and the emotional brains, which aren't aware of each other, by the way. And then it analyzes the information and makes plans. So it's all of our higher cognitive powers are, are sitting in the human brain. 
And what happens is that when people are in crisis, we literally lose two-thirds of our brain. We lose our emotional brain, so we lose our capacities to make decisions and know how we're feeling, and we lose our human brain, which means we can't plan, we can't analyze, we can't do anything else, and all we have left is our survival brain, and we're back to fight, flight, or freeze. And, you know, and what ends up happening there is there's a part of our survival brain that's called our amygdala. And so the, amyg- the amygdala's job is to sense a threat, usually physical or verbal, and when it thinks we are truly threatened, it takes over. So the human brain, which wants to analyze the situation, there isn't time for that. And when people are really frightened, they divert all of the impulses from the human brain to the amygdala, which shuts down the human and emotional brain. So literally, the term for this, and I love this term, is called amygdala hijack. So the amygdala hijacks two-thirds of our brain, which means our ability to reason drops drastically, our working memory falters, our stress hormones flood our system, and we lose our emotional intelligence, and you cannot reason with anyone, including yourself, when you're in amygdala hijack. So it could be a real situation where there's a tiger stalking us, or it could be our imagined, oh, what happens if this goes on, and I never get back to work again. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, a great way to simplify those things that are going on, and there's lots of things that were going through my head there as you're talking about that, because when we talk about decision-making being tied to that emotional part of our brain, I was thinking about, you know, people think that we make decisions based on facts, which is that human brain, but it, what you're saying is it's proof that it's really emotions that are tied to the decisions that we're making. And sometimes maybe the decisions we make or the decisions that other people that we are seeing make don't seem rational. And and that's what's really happening, it sounds like. They they really aren't rational because we're not rationalizing the decision. Uh, and then as it keeps going deeper, deeper and deeper and deeper, I mean, we're not even using emotion. It's just primal fear. You're absolutely right. We think we make decisions logically and we're full of crap. Hmm. We make decisions in our emotional brain and then we back and fill with our logical brain once we have our human brain, once we have have that available to us again. And that means literally, I'm sure that you and Lord knows I have sat across from people and we think they've lost their minds. And we're absolutely right. They've lost two thirds of their brain. All they have left is fight, flight, or freeze. So sitting there and, and, and usually if it's not us who's in amygdala hijack, we can be pretty clear about what we think the next thing they ought to do is. And we can state it to them. And we are just shocked every time that they can't say, yes, let's do that. But they can't say yes because they can't make decisions and they can't look down the pike because they have no planning capacity. The amygdala Mm. has literally hijacked the the parts of their brain that can be in any kind of action except fight, flight, or freeze. Right. So let's dive into a couple areas then on that uh, in talking about this because this is significant. You know, we're making... We're, we're, we're charged in our lives with making decisions and building plans and, and implementing them. And, you know, if we're in that hijack situation, it's hard to really do that. And let's go down two paths. One path is when we are experiencing it, how do I manage myself in that situation? I mean, can I become more aware? Can I become more in control of that? How do I deal with that when it's me getting hijacked emotionally there? Mm-hmm. 
And my favorite response to that comes from a guy by the name of Dr. Mark Goulston, who created a process that he calls, and, and I will use the kind term for it, the oh crap to okay process. So, so crap is my substitution. But he basically says there are five steps to getting your brain back. And he starts with oh crap, which is the reaction phase. So if your brain could speak with you in this moment, it would say, this is a disaster. I am so screwed. What the heck just happened? I can't fix this. It's all over, which means that there we are in our survival brain. You know, and when people, including us, are going through oh crap, you know, some may act out fearful aggression. They could be angry and strident. You could see the veins pulsing in their in their foreheads and you know, literally scared out of their minds. You know, and some may react with tears. Once again, they're in their survival brain. So the first thing we need to do is start moving beyond the survival brain. So the best strategy when you are in oh crap or you're with somebody who's in oh crap is to have them breathe deeply. And the most calming breath research shows is one where you inhale for a certain number of beats and you exhale for twice that. So, you know, so let's do that right now in case you're, you're tempted to be a no crap. Uh, so inhale for three beats, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and exhale for six. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, 1,006. And you can feel your system relaxing. And another thing you can do with people who are in oh crap is have them close their eyes because part of what's going on is that they are already overstimulated. So stopping the visual overstimulation when they close their eyes, if it's a safe environment to do that. And then the most important thing we can do once, you know, once they or we are calmed down a little bit is to ask, what are you feeling? The line is name it to tame it because a lot of times when we're in oh crap, we're trying to convince ourselves that we're not afraid or we're not hurt or we're not angry or we're not sad. Chances are we have not lost our minds because we're so happy. But naming your feeling means that you're stopping that fight and you're also starting to re-engage the emotional part of your brain, which is where you identify your feelings. So breathing deeply, answering the question, what are you feeling? and in these days, it could be, I'm feeling fear. I'm afraid that I might contract this virus or my, you know, my company won't hire me back. So now we know it's fear. And Goulston says, then the next phase you enter into is the oh God phase, which is the release phase. This is the kind of victimy phase. If your brain were able to talk to you, it would say, oh my God, this is a huge mess. I am going to get stuck with cleaning it up. Crap, why does this stuff always happen to me? And it's true. It sounds like you're being victim-y, but what you're doing is you're starting up your emotional brain. And when you're in the oh God phase, the best strategy is after you've expressed, I'm afraid of this, then you continue to breathe deeply and slowly through your nose and keep your eyes closed once again, if that's safe, and keep doing it as long as it takes to let it go. And then you can start feeling your inner balance come back which takes you to phase number three, which is the OGs phase or the recenter phase, where if your brain could talk to you, it would say, all right, I can fix this, but it's not going to be fun. So the strategy you're using now in OGs is you keep breathing and it might help you to move, realize that you're moving from the red alert down to the yellow alert by saying the, the, the different phases that you're going through, which is, oh crap, oh God, oh geez, oh well. 
because a well is the next phase you come into, and that's the refocusing phase, where if your brain could talk, it would say, I'm not going to let this ruin my day, my week, my life. Here's what I need to do right now to make it better. So for me, it's like using your righteous anger to power you forward. You know, you're, now your human brain is getting back because you're talking about, I'm, you know, what do I need to do right now to make it better? So you can start planning again. And you're thinking about what to do to control the damage and to make the, the best of the situation, which ultimately takes you into the final phase, which is the okay or the re-engaging phase. And if your brain could talk, it would say, I'm ready to fix this. And the best strategy now is if you've had your eyes closed, uh, open them up. And now you're ready to start planning on what you need to do next. So I think, number one, being aware when you feel like everything is out of control and there's absolutely nothing you can do, which is where we started, you know, in the oh crap phase, you know, to ask yourself, what am I feeling? So you stop fighting. Oh, no, I know I'm not afraid. No, I'm not afraid. You know, you stop fighting that, you know, putting the energy into fighting something that's true. And you just need to learn to accept that, you know, and breathe and keep your eyes closed and do the things that calm you. And the, the scoop of course, is the more that you do this, the more that you follow this process, the faster you're able to get through it. Although I don't wish people continuing crises so they get better on the, oh crap to okay process. <laughs> Let's practice. Right? Yeah. <laughs> People go through a crisis when they're focused on how the world should be, but isn't and never will be. And this is a process that helps you get ready to deal with the world as it is. So the, the sooner that we can deal with what's actually going on and move past what we wish was going on, the sooner we can move back into that kind of problem solving, planning action phase. Is that right? Right. Right. You know, but at the same time, calming our emotions by knowing what it is that we're feeling, because nothing happens until we wake up that emotional brain, which is where we make decisions. It sounds like these are tools that we can use on ourselves. We can use it with others when we're observing this. And it's maybe a little counterintuitive. I've, I've seen people where, you know, maybe somebody else is, is, is in that oh crap moment, right? Mm -hmm. And the person that's with them is trying to rationalize them out of it. Right. And it just, it just doesn't go anywhere. No, no. Cause their human brain isn't there to hear it. You know, that's a good point because I've, you know, I've, I've seen, and, and you, you read studies about this where maybe somebody that witnessed a crime, uh, didn't hear a noise or a shot or something like that. And th that happens in those extreme situations where our, our faculties just shut down and we can't hear or see certain things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You know, and, and probably the, the best story I have from personal experience on that was there, you know, so I'll just tell you the story. You know, Fred is a 14 year old boy standing three feet away from me. And in this moment, I can't tell you anything about how Fred looks because all I can see is that he is holding the world's largest machete. You try to call for help. I'm going to cut you. I was the only adult in a boy's group home. And Fred had run away two days before, and now he's back. And because I'm the adult, I'm thinking it's my job to tell Fred what to do. So I say, Fred, you can't be here. You have to go to intake, and you have to let them clear you to come back down here. Go to intake. And Fred said, no, I'm going to my room. It's like, Fred, why are we having this conversation? Why don't you just go to intake? No, I'm going to my room. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. Just go to your room. No, just go to intake. No, I'm going to my room. 
And so I walked into the staff office to call for backup so I could have have somebody be with the other boys while I worked with Fred to get him to intake. And that's when Fred followed me into the office, zipped open his backpack and pulled out what I still today to be believed to be the world's largest machete. And he cut the phone cord, my only lifeline to the outside world, and told me if I tried to call for help, he was going to cut me too. Well, now I know there I was in amygdala hijack. Hmm. And all I could think of to do was babble. So I'm standing there saying, but Fred, Fred, I like you and you like me and you don't want to hurt me. And there's nothing in how Fred's looking at me that's saying he's agreeing with anything I'm saying. And the only thing I could think of to do was babble. So I just kept babbling on. And finally, I said something that that hit Fred, which was, you don't want to get you're going to you don't want to get into the world of hurt you're going to get into if you hurt me. At which point I saw Fred blink. And later he'll tell me he started picturing what his life would be like if he knifed me. That Daniel Cottage, where we were standing, wouldn't be his home. The boys out in the hallway would not be his friends. The police would come and drag his butt off to juvenile hall and they'd lock him up. But all I saw was the blink. And in that moment, somehow I knew this was my chance. So I held out my right hand and I said, Fred, just make this easy on yourself and hand me the knife. And I was scared to death because I thought Fred might bring that knife down and chop my hand. But at the same time, I knew that Fred was a good kid and I needed to give him the chance to act like one. And I can't tell you how long I stood there sweating through everything I had on until Fred finally sighed and he handed me the knife. And I remember sticking it in the in the staff closet there and locking it up and just leaning my head against the wooden door and taking a breath and then turning around and looking at the boys in the hallway and saying, okay, show's over. You know, find yourself something to do or I'll find something for you. And frankly, there's nothing like telling teenage boys that you would find something for them to do that <laughs> makes them melt away. <laughs> and then I turned and looked at Fred and really saw him for the first time. And, you know, and there he was, the skinny kid with the dirty cutoffs and the dirty red T-shirt and the hair plastered to the side of his face and the, you know, tennis shoes that were, you know, too big for his feet. And I remember saying to him, sit down before you fall down. And he did. And I knew Fred's story, that his mother was a schizophrenic. And so he said to me, I went home, I, I ran away to be with my mom. And every time I'd be in the house, she'd tell me, get your butt outside. And every time I'd be outside, she said, get your butt back inside. There ain't nothing I can do to please this woman. And I thought, yep. And there I was standing there telling Fred, go to intake, like some other adult who wasn't paying any attention to him. And, you know, as we sat there and talked, I realized that that I had been just another adult who wasn't paying any attention to him, and he had pulled the knife to get my attention. And it was about this time that my unit supervisor showed up, and we sent Fred back to his room, and he said, when he heard the story, he said, well, we got to bounce Fred. We can't keep him. You can't have kids bringing knives in and threatening staff with him. And I said, no, but we got to keep him. You know, he trusted me. He gave me the knife. We got to give him a chance. You know, and we kept Fred. And he was able to graduate from the program and not end up on the street in jail or dead. And so, frankly, that's become the litmus test for my job. As long as nobody pulls a machete on me, I'm having a good day. <laughs> it's, it's a new standard. It's a great story because <laughs> it, it sounded like there's some things you wish you would have done differently, and there's some things that you were glad that you did well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, now I know I was in amygdala hijack and babbling was all I could do. And, you know, and I was darn lucky because people have said, oh, how brave, you know, and, oh, and how, how, you know, how wise. It's like, no. <laughs> how <laughs> I was darn not lucky. thinking. I was not thinking. <laughs> uh, but, you know, had, had I been able to say to Fred, how are you feeling? What, you know, what's going on with you? You know, before I got the knife, chances are I would have gotten it sooner. Fred wouldn't have been losing his mind either as he's standing there with the knife wondering what the heck he's going to do next. We were both in amygdala hijack. And so neither one of us could really make a good move. Yeah, in other words, when it's you or it's somebody else, what we need truly is compassion because we don't, we're not firing on all of, all of our cylinders at that moment. And we need to name our emotions first and breathe and, you know, and take the time it's going to take in order to go through that process to get our brains back. You know, you mentioned uh, we, we don't want to put ourselves in too many of these situations just to practice, but what are some things we could do to be more prepared? Because it, it, it seems like there's an element of surprise that the survival brain just takes over because something came up we weren't expecting. How, how might we be more prepared so that we can maybe keep our wits about us a little bit more I've thought back about what it was I could have done better. And I'm working at a residential treatment facility. Chances are good at some point I'm going to feel threatened by a kid. Right. I probably could have done a little what ifing first to figure out, all right, so if this shows up, you know, what can I do? And, and we, can, we can do that, I think, in, in our jobs as well and, and in our personal lives is take a look at some of the worst case scenarios, not that we want them to happen, but if something, if something truly fearful or if something that makes me really angry, you know, whatever my buttons are, get pushed instead of doing a knee jerk reaction or, or literally losing two thirds of my brain, what can I do to plan in advance a little bit? So I don't feel so taken unaware and my amygdala takes over. So that sounds like, uh, you're kind of going to leverage that, fact that our brain can't tell the difference between a real and imagined threat, only using that with our practice and our preparation. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's true. And, and also, here's the compassion part again. When we lose our emotional brains, we really are incapable of making a decision. Because they've, they've done research and the, you know, the, the name of the emotional part of the brain, the technical name is the limbic system. And they've done research on people who have injured limbic systems. And you can stand in front of me and hold up in your right hand a blue pen and hold up in your left hand a red pen and say, Lynn, what do you want, the red pen or the blue pen? And if I have an injured limbic system, I can't pick something that simple. I cannot make a decision. So part of it is if we have, I I know this is true of me, I kind of default to taking action. And when I'm not able to do that, I think there's something wrong with me. And, you know, so why am I not taking action? Why am I not moving on this? And some of it becomes, okay, recognizing that that part of my brain isn't working right now. And to be kinder to me or to be kinder to the person who's sitting across the table from you. And it's clear that, you know, <laughs> that the lights are on and nobody's home. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, from a practice standpoint, maybe, maybe I'm an executive and I have anxiety over presenting to a, a a group, a tough message, doing some practice. Maybe I'm in sales and I have I, I, I have a history maybe of in certain situations kind of locking up. Uh, I could do 
rehearsing and practicing to get me more comfortable with that same sensation and those same emotions? Is, does that fit in to help us to try to keep in charge of our brain a little bit? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And also, if you happen to be a presenter, if you're standing on your feet when you're, do, when you're in this meeting, occasionally, have you, has this ever happened to you, where you're standing there and you thought you knew what you were going to say next, and then it's like you lost 50 points of IQ and you have no idea what it was that was going to happen Absolutely. next. So here's the neuroscience of it. Literally, your body is in freeze. And so is your brain. And you're not quite sure what it was you were going to say next. So what you do is you move. You know, left, right, forward, back. It doesn't make any difference. You just physically move your body. And what happens is that opens up the flow of energy in your body. And it at least allows you to ad lib until you can remember what it was that you were going to say next. And people say to me, Lynn, when you speak, you move around all the time. And I say, darn right. Mm. <laughs> Helps me remember. Yep. So that physical connection with our brain, it helps us to, to kind of prime the pump and jar things for us. Mm -hmm. You know, and it all ties into to that, you know, the emotional intelligence bit of not fooling yourself about what you're feeling or not denying what you're feeling or trying to cover it up. And certainly with yourself. And of course, there are situations where you don't feel comfortable telling somebody that you are terrorized or that you are really angry. But at least if you can admit it to yourself, you won't be held hostage for as long. Right. You're not covering it up and all kinds of weird things might happen in our behavior, what, we, what we're saying when we're covering up what we're feeling. Mm -hmm. I think this is such a powerful tool for us as as communicators, whatever our role is, to be able to know all of our connection with the people around us, there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface in us and in them. And your, your comment about compassion, you know, having the ability to say, can I see where this person is at? Can I give them some grace that right now it seems like they're, they're kind of anxious or they're concerned. And I, I, I probably can't just rationalize them out of that. I need to step back and step into more of those basics of let's just, let's take a breath. Maybe it's, let's go for a walk, right? Mm -hmm. Let's change it up, do something more physical uh, before we can get back to rationalizing or thinking clearly or making decisions. We're just not in a place where we should be making decisions right now. And maybe that's even part of it too, is just knowing in this moment, we're not thinking clearly enough where we should be making major decisions. That's, that's a perfect idea. And the idea, too, of, of taking a walk. And now, particularly since people are doing more work remotely, making sure that when we can, when, when we're having difficult conversations with them, that we do the, the Zoom or the Skype or the whatever so we can actually see people. Because you can tell that deer in the headlights look when you see it. And, you know, and instead of pressing people to continue to, to try to figure out something or, you know, why aren't you doing this or how about doing that? And, and knowing that they just can't track in that moment to give them the grace of saying, you know, maybe we need to take a deep breath or maybe we need to take a five minute break and everybody just walk around a little bit and, you know, and then get back to this. Knowing that you can't, it's, it's truly one of those situations where you can't force an outcome and you can't punish people for not having all their wits about them when they're in crisis. Now, this is, this is such an important skill. And I'd, I'd love, you know, just, just kind of wrap it up here. When we think about topics like this, where we're, we're communicating through 
the stress and the anxiety and the things that we might be feeling, what's something that, and it could even be beyond this, you know, you work with uh, people on communication on lots of different levels, but what's a takeaway or, or something that you would really want people to remember or keep in mind when it comes to communication? It actually all boils down to something I remember hearing a friend's mother saying when I was a kid, which is, you can be right or you can be kind. And particularly when people are under stress, including you, choose to be kind first. Because people will remember that. All of us have been in situations where somebody told us what to do and, you know, and later we felt badly about it or we felt angry to them. But when somebody, when you recognize that somebody else is in crisis, somebody is in, you know, in oh crap or oh God, and literally doesn't have the brain power to move forward, to give them that moment of grace and, and switch up the subject a little bit and help them breathe and ask them how they're feeling and to treat them like a human being rather than somebody we need to cross off our to-do list to get our stuff done this day. Boy, we can make a difference not only in their world, but our own and, and recapture our own humanity and do our own deep breathing. So we keep our wits about us as well. Yeah, that's, Great advice. When we when we think back to interactions we've had, rarely do we think to ourselves, boy, I wish I would have been angrier with them, or I, I wish I would have been more judgmental in that moment. Right? <laughs> that's that's typically not our our reflection. And right. so it's wise to kind of prepare ourselves ahead of time that there's going to be some tough situations. Mm-hmm. Lynn Franklin, uh, great insights, just really tools that we can put to work and help our our own growth so that we can be better for others and uh, be better leaders and better communicators. You, um, you've got some books out, you've got some resources. If people want to get in contact or learn more about some of what you're doing, where should they go? Uh, well, the first thing I'd recommend just for grins is I have a TEDx talk out there called Read Their Bodies to Read Their Minds so you can figure out how people's brains work by looking at their body language. So just search for uh, Lynn, L-Y-N-N-E, Franklin, TEDx, and you can find that talk. There's also my website, which not surprisingly is lynnfranklin.com. And you can certainly find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. That's excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your insights. And I uh, look forward to to hearing more about tools that you have and, and keeping track of the things that you're working on. It's been a pleasure, Dean. Hey, and everybody out there, take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're driving, don't close your eyes. True enough. And don't walk around. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Lynn. Great practical insights from Lynn on how we can be more aware of what's happening with us emotionally when we're dealing with stress and uncertainty, and tools that we can use to really get back in control and regain our thinking, as well as when we're in the middle of that interaction with somebody that we sense anxiety is high, uncertainty is growing. Maybe we're not in a place where we should be making big decisions right now, and things that we can do to to help us in our relationship with others improve our ability to connect and communicate and make good decisions. So be sure to check out some of the resources that Lynn has on her website as well as her TEDx talk. And I love getting the emails from you on topic ideas, on 
guest suggestions, be sure to send them in to dean at clarisresults.com. That's D-E-A-N at C-L-A-R-U-S results.com. And I look forward to talking with you next week. Make it a great one.